We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet and next episode, this is episode 3 of, of the uh, Loyola MSA podcast and what is our topic? Our topic is being Muslim in a non-Muslim campus slash world. Oh, okay. But before we do that, let's uh, introduce ourselves. So, Shisha, tell us something inter- interesting about yourself. Um, this is the hardest part, honestly. But okay, something interesting about myself. Um, I, if it, okay, yeah, this is genuinely really interesting. If you want me to do something, say the opposite, because I do the opposite. Didn't we say that last time? We did. Okay. Oh, no, no, that was in the middle of the talk show. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so so just, don't do your homework. Uh, I'll do my homework. So okay. I never say do this because then I won't do it. Don't stay here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Violet, please tell us something interesting about yourself. An interesting fact about me is the um, the um, the actor, Avon Jogia, who plays Beck from Victorious, if you're familiar with that. Um, he featured me in a book of poems called Mixed Feelings, about people of mixed race. Oh, interesting. Avan Jogia? Yes. Very interesting. Can I say something? Bol. Bol, okay. Okay, um, yeah, I'm doing this self-promotion, but buy my book, Rebel Against the Odds. It's in Amazon, guys. Amazon, guys? (laughs) It's in Amazon. It's called Rebel Against the Odds. Rebel Against the Odd. It's odds, but okay. There See, it is. There it is. Oh my God, it's so, it looks so amazing. I'm so proud of myself. I'm, I'm It's free on myself. Kindle? Kindle Unlimited. Buy the oh. book, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Buy it. All right, Sage, tell us something interesting about yourself. <clears throat> something interesting about myself is... My first purchase from my own money above the age, above the amount of like $20 was a drum set that I found on Craigslist and it was $90 and that was my life savings at that point in fourth grade. So I convinced my sister to drive to Bartlett, Illinois. And um, oh, was she like sixth grade? No, she was like uh, 17, 18, 20, um, something like that. And we went to Bartlett, and there was the there were two there were two like rock star looking people in this house in Bartlett, and I gave them my life savings, and they gave me this old drum set. <laughs> so I messed around with it for six months, and then I dismantled it, and it's still in my basement today. How good are you playing drums? I I never I never got beyond like amateur level, mm. but I still tap on tables today. You're so talented. Mashallah. All right. <laughs> what are some of your researches regarding the experience? Oh, oh yeah. We first have we have to begin with our Islam lesson. Please, Violet, give us some Islam tutelage. So previously we talked about um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and we talked about Alhamdulillahirobbilalamin. It's like um, previously on <laughs> Avatar. <laughs> okay, okay, we get it. We like Avatar. Um, <laughs> So now we're talking about Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. So 
we, we previously when we talked about Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, we talked about a lot of the same things of the meanings of Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. But another thing is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, says Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, after he says Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, um, it's, it's sort of like a, an encouragement after a warning. So he's, we're, we're testifying to his like grandeur and saying Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And then he's, he's, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that he is also merciful, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. So it's kind of that contrast there you see a lot in the Qur'an. Um, and so these, these two words, they obviously, they, um, they, they talk about the superabundance and perfection of divine mercy. Um, so there's a, there's a hadith um, about Surah Fatiha, the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has divided it between um, us, his servants, and himself. And so when we say Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, Praise to Allah, Lord of the Worlds. Um, Allah says, My servant has paid homage to me. And when we say the merciful, the compassionate, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, My servant has praised me. And when we say the master of the day of judgment, Allah says, My servant has proclaimed my greatness. And when we say, You alone do we worship, you alone do we ask for help. Allah says, this is between me and my servant, and he shall have what he asks for. And then we say, guide us on the right path, the path of those whom you favored, not the path of those who you led astray. Allah says, all this is for my servant, and he shall have what he asks for. Yes, and so um, speaking about that hadith, there was a sahabi who, whenever he used to recite Surah Fatiha, he would pause after each ayah so that he would remember that he was speaking with his Lord and that Allah was replying to him. So that's a good practice to maybe implement in our lives. Okay, very good. <clears throat> um, here's a question to think about. When Allah Ta'ala is saying these things about his servant, whom is he saying them to? What do you think? How is it phrased? My servant has praised me. My my to servant. angels, right? Yeah, so he's speaking to the angels. So when you're reciting Al-Fatiha, Allah Ta'ala is praising you to the angels. And so that's essentially the most noble possible environment. And think about how you would feel if you had some friends who were praising you behind your back, right? Feels nice. Okay. Now imagine there was somebody you hold in really high regard who is talking about you and praising you behind your back, right? Now imagine there's some celebrity who is praising you behind your back. Okay. Here we're saying Allah Ta'ala is praising you behind your back to angels. So yeah. Okay, very good. One thing I when I was when I was a kid, um, and I heard that hadith, uh, I always like wondered if God needed time to respond. So I always like I, I was always in the habit of saying it together, like with like continuously. And then I always wondered, like, did God get a chance to respond and what was your conclusion I ended up just breaking it up really yeah if I may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls time so yeah, yeah, time is relative so what, whatever dimension we have time in is not the same yeah. as his time I'm speaking about like second grade Sajid oh Sage second grade Sajid didn't know about the sage. Sage. Sage, 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 sage. 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 second grade Sage didn't know about Relativity and Einstein's theory. Sage probably did. Second grade Sage. Yeah. You know, he probably knew relativity. He'd heard of it. 
Sorry? He had heard of it. You heard of it? Yeah. Okay, having said that, uh, let's get into our topic of the day. What do you got? Um, okay, so my research started with... Uh, this is kind of a cute thing, but there was this guy in a car with Tarek Ramadan uh, driving him to a lecture, and he spent those 20 minutes interviewing him. Um, and they talked about basically... And this is like kind of along the lines of the conversations that we've had in the past about like secularity and living as a Muslim in a modern world. So that's where I'm going to start. Um, but basically, the, the, the idea of modernity shaking a lot of the milestones or the, the benchmarks that we use to navigate the world, um, intellectual landmarks specifically, and how that's kind of disrupted the ways that we think about reality, the ways that we understand and come to know about reality. Um, we've talked about before in our conversations about, um, you know, approaching things from a secular perspective versus from a, a God-oriented oriented perspective. And we actually talked about, talked about this in the last episode, too. Um, and... That was kind of the the beginning of that podcast, and then as they t- talked, they entered into like conversations about plurality and pluralism, and how Muslim communities should operate in terms of that. And a point that Tariq Ramadan made was that our communities um, don't have to be uniform in order to be united, and I think that imposing uniformity leads to dissent and leads to people breaking away. And I think that's what happens a lot in in our communities, on campuses, in our institutions like Masajid, um, and in the world like in general. Like uh, movements of Islam that kind of disengage from the tradition and then um, do their own thing. So I think that, I think for conversation one thing we can talk about is unity versus uniformity and how how plurality and pluralism plays out in our daily lives. Okay, so define some of these words. Define unity, uniformity, plurality, right. pluralism, secularity. Define right. all of them. All of them? They <laughs> <laughs> have a word bank. Yeah. Uh, okay, unity is... We've talked about unity before. I take it as acting according to... Acting in mutual interest, basically. Um... And we might not have the same goals. We should have the, the ultimate goal of of being good, God-oriented people on this earth. Um, but that can take different forms, and how we interact with people should be um, in a united fashion and not in a divided way. Uniformity is demanding everyone to be the same in terms of ideology, in terms of um, jurisprudence, in terms of uh, appearance, etc., etc. Secularity is um, kind of removing God from the equation about how we order the universe. So based entirely on like rationality and our own intellect. Um, what other words did I have to define? Plural, plural, plurality, okay. pluralism. Plurality slash pluralism. I'm not sure if he makes a difference, but I take it as the fundamental condition of a society being consisting of different types of people and not having the default be one type of person. 
uh, which is how we exist as in a Western context. Okay, but that's simple English. That was simple English. <laughs> Simpler. Um, we live in America, in the West, and we a fundamental part of America is that we coexist with other people, and that's part of our default existence here. Like the default here is not that one group of people is is like the overwhelming majority. Although it kind of is, but like we we exist with other types of people. Right. Um, to kind of add to that, oh, yeah, sure. oftentimes we characterize America as a um, a melting pot, right? But it's more of like a multi multicultural society. Okay. And what's the difference between the two? So a melting pot is like everyone's the same, right? We should treat everyone the same. <laughs> everyone is the same. Um, but a multicultural society means that we have these different pockets of different cultures, but everyone coexists having their own cultures. Mm-hmm. So what happens when people find difficult to coexist together? Mm-hmm. So like in college campuses, especially because that's like one of the parts of our topic, um, we have people coming from different religions, ethnicities, backgrounds, but sometimes there is a massive clash happening. Um, people can be vocal about it or not, but most of the times Muslims are looked down upon um, for things that they're not even responsible for. So, like, mm-hmm. how do you go about that? Uh, how do everyone or how can everyone coexist when there are situations like right. that happening? Yeah, I think I think for us, the fact that there are a plurality or there is a plurality of people in our country is um, just how it is. And the question then is, how do we ensure like fair treatment and justice for all of those groups of people. Um, so I think pluralism is like the default and the question is how how do we interact with people to ensure everyone has a fair a fair chance. Okay. Um, so I was reading uh, this article. It's called Addressing Islamophobia on College Campuses. Um, and it was very interesting because it was about this uh, uh, this Muslim administrator. Um, his daily job is basically to interact with students, parents, staff. And he was working with the student and his parents who were missing uh, who were missing required um, documentation to complete the college enrollment process. And the parents wanted to move ahead without completing the documentation process. Um, and this administrator, who was a Muslim, he explained that you know he they they can't really move on without completing the document process. So the parents actually said that it is people like you who are not even human that prevent my child from getting an education. People like you who are not even human. Yeah. that's like the exact those were their exact words that it is people like you who are not even humans that prevent my child from getting higher education so he was shocked and he uh, never experienced something like this before um, but he questioned himself that oh people like me uh, do they mean that the fact that I am a Muslim 
I shouldn't be in this position and I am responsible for all the bad things that are happening in the world. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, he, he, he felt, uh, he was stunned and he felt like left out. And later on, he did question himself that, okay, what should I do so like people stop questioning me for, for, for or, or they stop questioning me based on my religion or raising fingers at me. Um, and this is my perspective. I think a few ways to address uh, these kind of situations are, number one, we should stop apologizing uh, for the fact that we're Muslims because we are not responsible for things that these handful of people did who God knows, I mean, if if they truly followed Islam, they wouldn't have done those things. So what why? Thing, what things are you talking about? I'm talking about 9/11 because oh, okay, got it. it's after that that <coughs> these things became more common. So like, why should I or why should anyone else should apologize for something that they're not responsible for? Mm-hmm. Or why should they feel guilty? Like if if we see that something is wrong, if we uh, feel that you know there, there's something wrong happening with someone then i think it is our right to take a stand being part of this nation and we shouldn't feel that we don't belong here even if we are made to feel that way Hmm. any thoughts talk about uh, uh, talk about being a muslim in a non-muslim land oh i'm kind of a funny uh funny little story so my friend and i went went out to eat once my friends and i went out to eat once and as we're walking into the restaurant, we see this pickup truck that has this bumper sticker with the Twin Towers on it. And it says, everything I learned about Islam, I learned from 9-11. And so, of course, my friend's like, hey, you should go pose by this bumper sticker so I can take a picture of you with your thumbs up by the bumper sticker. Which is very funny, but it raises the point. Did you do, do it? I did. Do people really think that that is Islam? Yeah. Absolutely. Was that bumper sticker being ironic, or was it like, what was it saying? I'm not. I'm not I'm, Let's I don't just know. say it's on a Ford F one fifty. If that says anything to you. I what is that? Okay, so you're from Missouri. <laughs> Tell us what does a Ford F one fifty mean to someone in Missouri? And this is a really bad stereotype. And it's being recorded for the entire <laughs> world. Typically. To hear. People that drive pickup trucks. So the stereotype that other people have, not necessarily you about people who drive pickup trucks is? Generally, they are white males. Okay. And generally, they are, that's about it. <laughs> and and generally, they probably have guns. They probably, they probably yeah, wear Yeah, they, they, they're, they're the people that hats. fly like Confederate flags off the back of their yeah, trucks. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. this is part of the, the stereotype. This is a stereotype. Yeah. Now, it's a stereotype, doesn't mean it's always true, but yeah. And so, so then you, Sage, when you're hearing that, as the stereotype, how do you read the bumper sticker? Um, so initially when you said it, I thought, hey, this guy after 9-11 like, looked up stuff about Islam. And I thought that was cool. But oh. I guess that's very optimistic. That's <laughs> probably a little bit different than what, yeah. what uh, okay. actually happened. But you could be right. It could be that he has changed his name from you know, Joe Blow to, to Yusuf Blow. And... <laughs> Now he's giving Jumma Khutbahs all over the country. I mean, you know. on the other hand, my neighbor, he served in like like the war in Iraq, and he has a kafir bumper sticker. Okay. 
So tell on us. his pickup truck. Mm-hmm. But he is knowledgeable about Islam. And, like, whenever we would, like, we always, like, give gifts around, like, the holidays, like, in, in wintertime. And he, get, he would give us a gift basket back, and he would give us non-alcoholic sparkling cider mm. because he knew that we don't drink. And what is it, kafir? Kafir, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you can't always say that those people that have, you know, like, ironic bumper stickers like that are, like, ignorant. Sounds ignorant to me, but okay, but fair enough. Yeah, no, no, but the point you're making is that he was still polite, but yeah. So when the angel of death comes, they'll have an easier time finding him. Yeah. So, so the bottom line is that, that uh, the, the 9-11 sticker is, is hate, right? Mm-hmm. Gaffer is, is, is mockery. Mm. Uh, and it was common for many, people, many soldiers to have hats or T-shirts and tattoos that literally say Gaffer. Isn't the, the Jal going to have a tattoo that says Kafir? So, so the Jal is going to have Kaf Fa Ra on his, on his forehead. And there's a hilarious meme about how progressives will say, yeah, that's what, what's on his head, but what's on his heart, <laughs> right? In any case, so, so bringing us back to, back to um, uh, Missouri, tell us about life in Missouri. Good old Missouri. The thing about Missouri... Do you, do you guys actually call it Missouri? Some people do, yes. Okay. Do you? I do not. Okay. I say Missouri. Missouri. But I have a mix of different outside perspectives of English. Okay. (laughs) Anyways, Missouri. A lot of the time, we tend to, like, say that, like, you know, down south, people don't like Muslims. People are Islamophobic, they're homophobic, they're racist, all this stuff. But you find, for the majority of people, it's not true that they were just raised with certain beliefs that are not... Right? Yes, they're not right. But those people don't actually believe those things. Like, for example, my dad always, he keeps like a Bible and a Quran in his waiting room at his office. And a lot of the time you see, like patients will come in and they'll be like, oh, why do you have a Quran? And then so they'll actually start to check out the Quran and they'll ask him, can I take this home? And they'll read it, and then they'll realize that there's nothing in there that's bad. And so just because they were brought up with certain beliefs doesn't mean that they were, that they're racist people, that they're, like, bad people. It's just those beliefs that they were told to believe, and they accepted because they had no other information to go off of. I, I totally agree. I think uh, it can be hard to change what someone believes in by telling them something but you can show them and I think showing is always a lot more powerful like Islam it's it's about respecting other people it's about you know um, treating people with kindness and if you show those character traits then people will automatically they will be more inclined towards you and your beliefs and that will change a lot of the things that that happen Mm-hmm. It's very true. What do you think? I think... I mean... Yeah. Like, I feel like I have to contradict, you know? Um, but... Um, t- like, I don't accept everything I'm told, you know? Why can't I hold them to the same standard? Mm. Because I think people 
come from different walks of life and you can't see everyone the same way like you are probably a lot more informed about a lot of different things a lot of different topics um but there might be people who are not as informed or as educated as you are yeah but why can't i demand that they engage in critical thinking and say that this is not this is something that you and people from your community have to engage in in order to find something that's more representative of reality instead of your own projections another thing is though these people what reason have they to contradict these beliefs you know cuz they're they're growing up in mostly like white societies where they don't have to consider the implications of their ideas on of race on other people mm-hmm. you know so it's a so, homogeneous society you're saying yeah so how are they going to how are they going to have these experiences unless mm-hmm. unless we give them some sort of outside perspective like so living as a muslim one of the only muslims in all of my hometown it it I really hated it because there obviously no you're Muslims like, no one understands it's difficult I hate is that what you're saying No okay. I love non-Muslims I have family who are non-Muslims okay. but um so I hated living there but I slowly started to realize if I hadn't lived there there'd be hundreds of people who would not have even met a Muslim and because I was that Muslim that they met I made sure that at least I tried my best to make sure that what they saw of Islam was Islam, you know. Um, and so so sword? No. <laughs> no, no. And after that the burden of critical thinking is on Zandan. Yes, after that. But most people that are Islamophobic they haven't met a Muslim. And that's um, just the truth. And if you do meet a Muslim, you realize that they're people. Yeah. I think media also has a huge role to play because uh yeah there are uh non-Muslims who like you mentioned uh never met a Muslim but then I think media has a huge role in a way that uh there basically if the media wants to project something or someone in a negative light then people are more they 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 would lean towards that more so i think uh media has a lot of power but many times they don't realize it or even if they do they kind of they they see um their news as a way to just uh generate more profit rather than creating creating more awareness on what uh Mus- who muslims are what islam is so like there was another very interesting article that i was reading was where does this leave american muslims who work live and study on our campuses and um the article had this very interesting point about the word jihad that how it refers to the constant effort or struggle that an individual muslim goes through uh when they're living a faithful life um it does not stand for the holy war or you know uh to it it the the meaning behind it is not to kill other people but media and people who are in position of power often use that word and twist it around without having much information or knowledge about what it really stands for and i feel when people see this when people who don't know a lot of muslims when they're not they're not as, as exposed to islam when they hear such things i'm i i'm not going to say that well 
in a way they get brainwashed based on what they see on their television in the mm-hmm. news mm-hmm. i think that's true news does have a lot of like they have a lot of pull on how they can spin a story and make it seem bad or good and i think it's also true for for making things more conservative and also making things more liberal and people forget the liberal side people think oh like fox news they just spin everything make everything towards the conservative movement and all that but then people also forget that like like things like msnbc they always they spin things more liberally and we have to like take a nuanced approach and look at all of our sources to come to the best conclusion so what is authentic al jazeera <laughs> actually that's very true <laughs> <laughs> How do you define that? <coughs> there's actually, there's like this, um, I went to this like summer program in Missouri and there was this like crazy like, he was like paranoid or something and he was like, I don't know. Anyway, so he was telling us like all the best like, like websites and stuff to use that are like unbiased. He's like, always use uh, Firefox because they don't steal your information. And he's like, and Al Jazeera is the only unbiased news source. <laughs> so. You have who, it who on. Said, who said Al Jazeera is the only unbiased news source? Um, this guy that came to some summer camp I went to. Oh, okay, okay. In Missouri. In Missouri. In Missouri. Yes. And was he white? Yeah. Well, non-Muslim. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so, so we're saying that there. Okay, there are people that have stereotypes against us, in part because of terrorist acts and in part because of the media. Um, but talk more. Talk about being a non-Muslim even in in school or non-Muslim in college, what are the experiences like? A non-Muslim or? Being a Muslim in a non-Muslim majority school or college. I mean, there's always like a pressure to like, not to conform, but the default state of existence is not your existence, is, is what does that mean? the underlying sentiment. And that means... Um, what is normal is not you. Like, you are out of normal. You are what? abnormal. We're abnormal? Uh, that's, that's the abnormal, underlying... Not we, like, but okay. What is, what is normal and what is other? And uh, we put ourselves... We, I don't know if we put ourselves in this box or if this box is assigned to us, but we are made to feel othered. Um, by our practices, by our ideologies, by uh, our appearances. Um, and obviously this has like a long legacy in um, Western thought, but in, in practical day life, you have to reconcile that um, assigned otherness with your own authenticity. Okay, put that in simple English. You have to reconcile your own your own assigned otherness with authenticity. With like you have to be authentic basically is what I'm saying. Okay, what does it mean to be authentic? And that means you don't you you don't conceive of yourself as an other. And you conceive of yourself as an organic person who grew up with a family, um, with love and affection and that you deserve life, basically. You deserve to live with your practices. So you deserve to live? Is that sufficient? <laughs> yeah, deserve to live. 
that's all the, all that we need for authenticity? Yeah. What do you all think? Can you repeat the question again? Please? Okay, so basically I'm asking, you know, what is life like being a Muslim in a majority non-Muslim environment? And so one understanding is that you, as an organic individual, have the right to live. <laughs> <laughs> um. It makes sense. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, so when I made my decision... So first you agree, do you have a right to live? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, Thank you for your approval. <laughs> uh, so when I made my decision of coming to Loyola, uh, it was a very difficult one because, you know, I had a lot of other choices too. And I think when you have so many options, it makes you even more confused. Uh, but the reason I decided to come to Loyola was because um, I felt that... Um, it would really help me keep my faith intact in college, and that was one of the driving forces behind me, uh, behind, what am I saying? I mean, this makes more sense than an organic sentient being. You know, <laughs> oh, anyway. <it> existential. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm sorry, listeners, audience, <laughs> beloved, beloved audience. <laughs> okay, let's... let's um, <laughs> Let's change the conversation completely. Uh, growing up, all three of you grew up in non-Muslim majority environments, and now you're in a non-Muslim majority environment. What are ways where you felt like you were being compelled to be like the majority? So, I mean, for example, think of peer pressure. Uh, was the essence of peer pressure that it, that people were trying to make you be like the majority? I definitely feel so. I give examples. I mean, there don't have to be specific examples from Violet's life, but things, what type of pressures? Like going to parties. Yeah. I'm not much of a party person, but because my friends went to parties, I would go to parties. Mm -hmm. So, and then what's wrong with going to a party? I mean, it's... You it, see, there was alcohol at these parties. Okay. And drugs at and these parties. And by alcohol, you don't mean... Um, no, it wasn't like a medical it. party where we had <laughs> wind rubbing alcohol. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Got drunk off rubbing Isopropyl alcohol. Isopropyl alcohol, no. Okay, there was no. beer and white claws and all this stuff. What's white claws? They're, it's like it's like seltzer, but like... It's a Missouri thing. No, yeah. it's not. I'm joking. <laughs> white claws? It's like, it's like a drink. It's like... I don't know how to describe it. Okay, look it up. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Keep going. And so they also had tuck beer. What else do they have? <laughs> and drugs, of course. Mm -hmm. And I did not partake in these, fortunately. But I was still in, in environments that had a lot of these things. And okay, so White Claws is hard seltzer. Yes. Okay, seltzer, yeah. And I did And didn't... so your peers were partaking? Yes. Okay, got it. And had I not had that... That want to fit in, I would never be in these situations. In the first place? Yes. Okay. So there's a natural desire to want to fit in. Yes. Which then brings Violet or a hypothetical Violet to this white claw party. <laughs> and then there's the temptation. Uh, are people at the parties then trying to get Violet to consume? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
It was really funny. This this drunk girl comes up to me and she's like, she's a drunk. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, do you want some? I'm like, oh no, thank you. And she's like, it's apple juice. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's beer. So uh, it's barley juice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so then you're like, no. Okay. So and my, I have a question for you. Did you have to reject your urge to fit in, or did you adapt it somehow? What do you mean? Like, did you? Stop desiring to fit in, or did you like fit in with a different crowd or something? There wasn't really like a place for me to fit. You know what I mean? So I just I wanted to have people, and yeah. so these people, there were the there were the only other like minorities in my school. Um, if you would like to share, what brand of minority were they? Um, there are a lot of Hispanics, actually. Okay. And brand? Brand. <laughs> what? What flavor of flavor? minority? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of Hispanics. And, yeah. Yeah, so there were the only other minorities in my school, and so I, I bonded with them on that part, and we would talk about, you know, racial issues and stuff like that, and I could relate to them on that. And when they started doing these other things, I still wanted to be their friend, so I didn't want to feel like I was other than uh -huh. the group I put myself in. So so they're partaking of the shut-up kebab, and <laughs> you're saying, I'm still your friend, but I'm not going to partake of the shut-up kebab. Yes. Okay. So, so you, Mr. Sage, grew up as a South Asian, but not just a South Asian, a minority among South Asians, among Arabians in a non-Muslim majority city. Tell Some us. Suburb. Yes. Tell us what life was like. I mean, it was, I would. I, I don't want to say it was confusing because I didn't realize it was confusing until after I left, um, if that makes any sense. Um, but So you're confused like, but you didn't know it. Probably, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I'm, anyways. But there were a lot of things that I adopted that weren't, like, that my parents never did, that were Arab, Arab characteristics that were not against Islam, but, like, they were just Arab things that I would say and do. So it would be an example, like, you, you eat hummus or something, or? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like like mannerisms and... Uh, so you put like your, your fingers and your thumb together, tell yeah. people to slow down? <laughs> I do that sometimes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and like saying yell all the time. <laughs> so you're saying yell at your parents? <laughs> Not to my parents. So it's really interesting. I don't know if you read The Joy Luck Club. I saw the movie. Um, I don't know this movie. But like the idea that there's like a home, you have like a home intimate language and then outside of that home intimate language you have a different like persona mm -hmm. and for her for the person who wrote the Joella Club her home language was Chinese and like that was the language of intimacy in, in their house and then when she left she spoke English and I think it's the same with me like in my house I spoke Bangla um, but then outside I spoke English um, and like when you talk about parties and stuff all my friends were uh, at least the people I related to most were people who were um, upright, pious, devout, mashallah Muslims. 
And you also went to a full-time Islamic school. And I went to a full-time Islamic school. Mm-hmm. So I guess in in terms of upbringing, you could say I lived the, in, in the most uh, curated Islamic experience. Um, so I can't relate. <laughs> so, uh, so you're saying at your parties, did you get invited to parties? My parties, <laughs> honestly, were a lot of tea. Tea, tea and like just no, like tea. Talking. You actually Coffee. physically mean like Lipton, or you mean like gossip? <laughs> oh, that's actually a good <laughs> joke. Oh, much, much. Wow, you're a comedian, but um, <laughs> not Lipton. Lipton's not that good. Okay, I don't like, like Yorkshire. Dan- Yorkshire tea is best. Don and that. You know that red tea bag, <laughs> that red colored brand? Probably. That one. Lipton. Okay. Not Lipton. No. So so basically, you and your cool friends, you guys drank tea together. You know, with your pinky sticking out. And, <laughs> yeah. okay. and then what did you all talk about? Like, most of my friends were from studying Quran and studying, studying, studying like, um, in school stuff. So your peer pressure was, like, to memorize more surahs? I guess so. After, after his... I wish study. I had that. Yeah, yeah. So it was, like, the complete opposite. All right, tell us about peer pressure in terms of your experience. So, uh, I went to a high school that was very diverse, but not many... Indians or Pakistanis were there so a lot of my friends were like Hispanics and like African Americans and uh, it was great because I learned a lot from them I learned about their views and you know things that they believe in and we used to have really good conversations but I had this friend um, who uh, she was Hispanic and she wasn't the best person to be around because, <coughs> because she was with Sage. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember knowing any Hispanics before the age of like eighteen. Wow. Johnny girls before the age of eighteen. Like three. Yeah, yeah. Okay, continue. <laughs> oh, God, I see. Oh yeah. So yeah, it was because of some of the choices that she made, and she was responsible for those choices, but they were affecting me. So. Um, because sometimes she used to be like, oh, let's go have fun, let's go to this party. And initially I used to be like, no, you know, I don't think I would want to go, like my parents wouldn't allow that. Uh, like, it's okay, you can lie, you know, you can make up something and just come. And initially I was like, no, uh, I can't lie to my parents, like this, that's not acceptable. Uh, but then afterwards I give in and I was like, okay, I'm going to come with you, I'll just do it for the first time and then I wouldn't do it again. So I lied to my parents and, and I went Us. to this party. <laughs> Gasp. Yeah. yeah, I know that was a huge mistake that I made and um, I realized right that. Now? <laughs> I, they know, I acknowledge <laughs> this uh, and I think no one should do this. Don't lie to your parents guys, it's really bad. Because why? Care. Because they can find out <laughs> and then, and then Things can happen. I feel so. like there's much more interesting <laughs> aspects of the story that are not being shared, but we won't make you share them. Um, should I continue? Sure. Okay. So I went to this party, and there were guys there. There were like, I shouldn't say this, but <laughs> there were guys there, and there were things, uh, a lot of things that were happening, and made me feel very uncomfortable. Like people praying to Maz or something. <laughs> I wish, but no. So, get what happened afterwards? My dad came to that party. He came to the party? How do you find the party? <laughs> I 
don't know that exact. I mean, I can't reveal that. Okay, fine, That's fine. the part that was I was in would, Chicago. I was in Chicago. Was the party in your house? No, it was like <laughs> in a hotel. So oh, I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't reveal that how he came to know about it, but uh-huh. he just did, and he saw me sitting with. You wait, know, wait, wait, wait! Your dad came to the party looking for you. Or your dad came to the party. <laughs> he just. I don't he know. Just happened like, to be in the he area. just happened <laughs> to be there for some work. Um, he like for for some professional work, and he wasn't expecting me to be there because he was there f- to do something. Okay. Like, it was purely professional. Uh-huh. So he saw me, and I'm sitting with these bunch of people with these guys, and they were like, although I wasn't drinking, but those people were. And he was really angry at me. Um, I have never seen my dad so angry at me. So we had a very long conversation. And the good part was that my my family, my parents, they never forced me to do anything. So if they saw me doing something wrong, they would correct me by explaining me the consequences. they they handled the situation very wisely, and I was junior at that time. Junior in high school. Junior in high school, um, and of course, uh, my my mom, she has a very op- opposite personality. So she um, was she she became very strict all of a sudden, and she enforced all of these rules on me. And on the other hand, my dad was a lot more balanced, and he hmm. uh, he. Um, told my mom that how it's good to give me that space. Mm-hmm. End of the story, I learned a lot. I learned that uh, the people that you hang out with directly influence you. Um, they have a massive impact on who you become as a person. And I did not stop being friends with her, but I maintained, I started maintaining that distance. And I told her that, you know, this is not what I believe in and I don't stand mm-hmm. for it. And I would not choose to get involved in all of this <laughs> so I think peer pressure is real and like a lot of people end up just giving in because they feel that they're not going to fit in but like the question is that if you don't fit in then why are you forcing yourself to fit in just okay. if you see something wrong just walk away just just leave that's like that's the best thing to do yeah. I will say going off that that there was a breaking point for me when I just realized that like these people that I was hanging out with the drunks <laughs> drunk they were more than that they were good people okay but good drunks the good conversations that we had weren't worth the other things that I was doing so I would only like I, I would stop like doing things outside of school with them unless I knew like what we were doing and it wasn't something you know drunk <laughs> and and so I, I think I did have this moment of realization that I don't need to fit in. Because, so, for most of my life, I had had zero friends, not including my sister. Because, you know, anytime I would I'd tell my parents, I don't have any friends, they're like, you have a sister. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> that's the cop out. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> That was me. Anyways, so, in high school, I, like, I, like, wanted to have people, and I started to realize that, like, these people weren't beneficial to... It wasn't beneficial for me to sell myself out to hang out with these people. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting to one of the very, very key points about wrestling with all this, that 
that Allah Ta'ala, by virtue of your creation, has endowed you with a level of dignity and self-worth. And, and so it's common sense, but I mean, we all understand that if I'm doing something like drinking or drugs, then I am, I am doing something that is beneath my value. It is beneath the dignity uh, that, that I possess. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the pull of peer pressure is, is uh, that strong. Uh, what else do y'all advise people who are being pulled in by peer pressure? I think, back to your point actually, um, I think that was, that was my question was, was there a point when you had to reject the fitting in? Or did you adapt? And it seems like you rejected fitting in. You see, I never really fit in in the first place. Mm-hmm. But that I just, drive. I just gave myself this semblance of fitting in. Uh-huh. And then I, I, when I looked at myself in the mirror and said, I asked myself, "Is this really like who you are?" It was not. Mm-hmm. So I was, I didn't actually fit into this group. I just told myself that I fit in so that I wouldn't feel as lonely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Adding, adding more to what you are saying, I would say that it was really hard for me to reject the reject the whole idea of fitting in because I am I mean I'm the only child so I don't have any siblings and I didn't have a lot of people around me who were same age as I was so there was this automatic you know feeling that oh i i need friends i need people to be around me and as a junior um someone who was very not immature but maybe i'll just say that uh it was well, really we'll say, we'll say you were immature yeah okay. i mean not anymore just, just but maybe at that point but okay yeah. uh, it was really hard for me to distance myself from people because once i get attached to someone then i really get attached to that person and it's still true but like um, I wasn't very aware of, uh, you know, of what, what is right, what is wrong, although I had parents who were very involved, and I'm glad that was the case, because if they were not, then I'm sure I would have just lost the path. Um, so it was really hard for me to reject them or just say that, you know, I don't like this, uh, I can't, you know, accept this and it's not for me. So just saying those simple words, it was really hard for me. Uh, but I think the fact that my dad saw everything, I had this fear that, oh, if I do this again, then I'll probably get a bigger punishment. And it was because of that reason why I had to say that, no, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's done. I'm not going to do this. And I'm glad that was the case because imagine if my dad didn't see me. At that point, I did not like the fact that oh why did he came like what what's wrong like I wish that didn't happen but now when I think about it I'm glad that he came and he saw all of that mm. so it was like you're kind of saved yeah I got mm-hmm. saved mm-hmm. and I think uh, going back to your question that you know how, what will we tell to those people who struggle um, what was your question like who struggle what do you tell people who are struggling who are struggling okay um, I would just say that don't make the habit of lying or the habit mm. of 
just running away from your beliefs because once you do then it's really hard to come back mm-hmm. so if you feel something is wrong and if your gut feeling says oh this is not right i shouldn't be here then just go listen to your gut feeling listen to that first thing that comes to your mind and and do it instead of staying there and being being like oh i'm just going to do this today and then you know um I, i won't do it tomorrow the chances are that you will and that's dangerous Mm-hmm. So, what were you going to say? Um, one of the things that kind of gave me some clarity on this issue is reading Surah Kaf. Um, like the people of the cave, when when they when they like ask Allah for for guidance, Allah like he he um, like placed a barrier over them and sealed them in this cave, right? And he isolated them from everyone else, from this immoral society, and. Though they were alone, it was better than if they had indulged in the society. So not to say you shouldn't be in society, but remember that it's okay to be alone. It's okay. It's better to be right and alone than to be wrong and with people. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I think also um, this point. is repeated again and again but um the people that you spend time with uh determine your characteristics so i know for me like my own personal aspirations in high school were very low um and honestly it was the people around me that brought me up to their level rather than anything else um so if i was in a different space in high school Uh, around different people um i know that my aspirations would be very different um so it's not often a choice like a lot of times i feel like we f- fall into situations and we just fall into our our circumstances and we just stay there because we don't know anything else but if you have to choose between one or the other or if you have a choice at all um choose wisely <laughs> no, but <clears throat> you're, you're making this important point about about the way your friends influence you, right? Yeah. There's the hadith attributed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, where he compares your friends to a perfume seller or a blacksmith. And then if you spend time with a perfume seller, then sooner or later you're going to smell good. And if you spell, spend time with a blacksmith, then sooner or later your whole clothes are going to be covered in soot and you're going to smell bad. And, and so that is the way you influence your friends and that is the way your friends influence you. Yeah. And so in terms of the process of personal transformation, a good practice is to find friends who are embodying what you would like to be. So peer pressure is trying to get you to embody the people you should not try to be like. And then what you have to look for are people who, whether it's in Islamic practice or academic work, people who are doing what you would like to be like to put yourself in the company of them. and then inshallah spend time with them it'll start rubbing off on you even if it's something you know generic like people who are disciplined with their time management and such we were going to say something but also know that sometimes you can't find these people in the situation you're in and in that case it's okay to be alone yeah this is a uh, going back to your point about the the people of the cave that there are these young people who Uh, felt that if they remained among people they're going to get corrupted and so they decided it was better to to isolate themselves i think a lot of people fear that 
if they're alone they will be alone forever and it's a very valid uh fear to have and i went through this so i could relate to it but i want people to know that it is okay to be alone because it's wrong to be in the wrong company that can totally destroy you mm-hmm. so this is how i see it that i'm fine with being alone because i know that i have my allah and he is always there and he will be there forever and ever because mm-hmm. people come and they go nothing lasts forever and i think if we acknowledge that then things will become better so like at that point what i did was i um started praying more often and that was really helpful because it was a way of healing for me i could share my feelings with allah and i think i started believing that okay i have allah and i have i can share my feelings with allah and i don't need other people mm-hmm. um it's okay to make friends and it is okay to be around people and it is okay to be open minded but don't let other people lifestyle or opinion opinions to consume you mm-hmm. um just remain steadfast on your beliefs while accepting other people's beliefs i i mean the choices that those people made um they were their choices and they are responsible for their own choices but my choices could be different than theirs mm-hmm. so i think just accepting that and being okay with the idea of being alone is an essential part of of this world mm-hmm. i think this is a oh, go ahead when you were in that period of loneliness how how did you remain how did you remain convinced that you were like you're right well if Allah is my friend. What better friend can I have? Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, relate to both Violet's and Shisha's points, um, and relating that to the inherent worth and dignity that you have. A journey that each of us should place ourselves on is to develop uh, further and further individual intimacy with Allah Taala. That that Allah knows exactly what's in your heart. <clears throat> so when you are making prayers to him especially if you're in pain because of loneliness then pray with that pain and mentioning that ya Allah you know what's going on inside my heart right and then pray for whatever it is that that uh, you seek whether it is a decrease of pain or for the pain to bring you closer to Allah and it is not wrong obviously to pray for friends as well friends that are beneficial uh, uh for you And then what you're also reminding me of is that if a person does go down a wrong pathway uh they should not despair of the rahma of Allah for them to turn around and yeah seek apology because Allah is most forgiving and if you apologize if you regret then he is going to forgive you and he will show you the right path mm-hmm. um and i think as muslims often we are we are we're very harsh on ourselves we feel that you know we we just have to fit in we just have to go in like there is no other option but if someone is your friend or any any person in in your life they would accept you the way you are mm-hmm. they wouldn't question you they they wouldn't question your beliefs and if they 
do if they do question your beliefs if they do force you to be like the way they are then they're probably not the best people to be with mm -hmm. and it took me some time to realize that but when i did i completely did and i think um that's the way to go about it just like accept who you are and don't let other people force you to do something that you don't want to do going off of this whole friends thing i do remember having one friend who was an atheist but um when she was little she actually grew up in chicago um her nanny was pakistani and so she knew about islam and stuff and so for the first year or so of us being friends she it would just the small comforts were things that were helpful to me being her friends like she would say like inshallah and stuff like that that really made me feel more at home being her friend and um and then eventually like maybe a year or two pass and we we talked about religion a lot and she came to me one day and she's like can i go to juma with you and i'm like oh yeah of course and she's like okay if i if i want to pray with you guys like what do i have to do i'm like well you kind of have to believe in god to pray and she's like bro i believe in god <laughs> i've been trying to tell you this for the past like <laughs> six months and i'm like okay then <laughs> and and so she came to juma and she prayed with us and she would do all sorts of th stuff for us like she would um she would drive like an hour to go get zabiha meat so she could make us iftar from ramadan wow. and there's there's beautiful there's beautiful friendships in um in sorry. non yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> um in in non-muslims that really do care about your beliefs and and now her name is ibtihaj muhammad no no <laughs> actually i met ibtihaj muhammad at a bookstore in New York. <laughs> Actually, she was she was telling me about how um, she grew up in a small town in New Jersey, mm -hmm. and she was the only hijabi in her high school, like me. And um, she was saying that that's a, like a unique experience that does like solidify your faith. Mm. Nice. You were saying something? No. Okay. So, so what I was also touching on is. <clears throat> What if a person goes down the wrong road? And so the initial point we're making is that you should not despair of the mercy of Allah. Now, there's also patterns that people go down. And the archetype of this is shaitan, al-rajim, the accursed devil. And so, first, his, 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 one of his tragic flaws, so to speak, is jealousy of Adam, salam, that Adam, peace be upon him, has been selected as the khalifa. <clears throat> and then Allah announces the responsibility or the obligation for the angels to do the prostration. And in, in Iblis, the, this shaitan, he refuses to, to prostrate. And then when he is asked, why did you not, as you and I know, what does he say? I'm better than him. You created me from fire. You created him from clay. And and then he is being arrogant before Allah and he's getting banished, but then he asks Allah for an extension. Don't send me to hell now, send me to hell on the day of judgment. And then he says to Allah, because you made this happen to me, I'm going to ambush your true believers. And, and so what we're saying is, tragic flaws there, it's the jealousy. And that leads him to refuse uh, a, a, a command from Allah. Now a side point is some will argue that the command didn't apply to him. 
but even if the, because he was a jinn, not an angel, but even if the command didn't apply to him, he's still refusing. And then he's digging into his heels. He's hiding behind arrogance. And so what happens is that if I start doing wrong, then <clears throat> I should try to follow it up with a good deed as quickly as I can. Uh, otherwise, uh, if I start uh, hiding behind arrogance, and what is arrogance? It's inflating your own sense of self, your own value. Um, then that's very hard to get out of. Because then, once he does that, uh, he starts speaking in this arrogant way to Allah Ta'ala. You know, to God, he's speaking in an arrogant way. And then he's even not taking ownership of his behavior. He says, because you made this happen to me. He blames Allah. And then he acts as though he's trying to get back at Allah Ta'ala, you know, by taking down Allah's true believers. And so the pattern that you and I go through as people, uh, and may Allah protect us from this, is that if we start doing wrong, if we don't take ownership of it, then we start becoming arrogant about it to the point that we start justifying it for ourselves. And then what gets deeper is a process of rationalization. Now, as we're beginning to hide behind arrogance, there's also this small window in which our soul our, or our baser self may reject the behavior. So here I'm talking about especially bigger sins, that if you start partaking of something, you're going to start feeling anxiety about it. It could be anxiety about getting caught. It could be just anxiety about the fact that you're doing it. And if you don't feel physical anxiety, you're going to start feeling uh, uh, nightmares in your dreams because your, your inner self is rejecting it. But when that stops because you persist in the sin, then the arrogance realm takes, it, takes over. And then what starts happening is when you get into the process of rationalizing the behavior, then you're really digging your heels deeper. So this would be like someone, and it's, it'd be someone who's just coming up with the most ridiculous uh, excuses. So someone who is smoking weed and then they decide, yeah, this is healthy for me because it's all natural, right? You start giving yourself nonsensical uh, defenses. Or someone who's watching pornography, all these things, and decides, yeah, this, this will teach me, this will give me preparation for married life. I mean, just absurd, absurd explanations. And, or, you know, I'm doing these sins and now I'm beginning to define my true self, my authentic self. When you get into the level of rationalization, then it gets even harder to get out. But there's a part of you that's always going to know it's complete fraud. It's fraud that you're committing against yourself. And nevertheless, even if you're that deep that you're involved in this, you're at this level of, of personal rationalization and you're with people are also rationalizing it for you. Yeah, this is good. This is what you should do. This is how you get free. And you just feel like you have no way out. Even then, you should not despair of the mercy of Allah. And at the very least, try to figure out good deeds you can do, even if it's too hard to get out of the bad deeds that you're doing. And then work on increasing your good deeds. And then try to find help from someone who, whether it's a peer or someone higher, who can try to get you out of those things as well. Uh, because you might make a lot of mistakes that will haunt you for the rest of your life. Other questions, thoughts, reflections? I think, I think the kind of relationship that we share with our parents um, can be a major reason as of why people take the right path or go to the wrong path, mm -hmm. because... I feel many people just don't feel comfortable to go up to their parents mm -hmm. and freely express what they believe in or, you know, 
if if they have done something wrong, they just can go up to their parents or their uh, family members and express that, okay, I made this mistake and I'm really sorry. What should I do to, you know, come out of this? How how can I change this about myself? Um, and I think that is wrong because we should, um, as families, we should create an environment where our kids feel comfortable to come up to their older siblings or to their parents and express if they have done something wrong or not. Mm -hmm. That's uh, so many uh, places of strength or weakness of faith and then by extension strength or weakness of character come down to a person's relationship with their parents. And like where do you go if you don't have parents who are you I mean you have parents but they're not as supportive or you know they you think that they'll get mad at you if you uh, do something wrong or mm -hmm. if you have if you have done something wrong so in that case where do you go like who should you talk to and I think that is what finding that one person is what a lot of young people struggle with these days yeah that's uh then if you can't find <clears throat> this among your parents, see if you can find it among your siblings, if your siblings are adults. If you can't find it among your siblings, then look into your extended family to see if there's someone that you can you can go to. And if you can't find it among them, then look at local religious leaders in your community. But each level you remove yourself from your parents, the more you're also entering murky ground because when your parents find out, they're going to get even more upset. Yeah. Right? And sometimes, even if your parents are not supportive, if you need help, you got to go to the parents. Because at the end of the day, no one is going to care about you the way your parents do. This, of course, speaks uh, from the perspective that you have the privilege of both your parents being around. As you and I know, there's many among your peers who have lost one or both of their parents and do not even have that as, uh, an, option. as an option. Any other questions or thoughts? I want to talk briefly on the kindness of non-Muslims. Okay. Um, a lot of times, growing up in a small town where there are people who are unfortunately Islamophobic, mm -hmm. I have experienced some hate because of that. Mm. But for as much hate as I got, there was always that one person that was there when I needed it. Just And then these were strangers. Like, I was eating at a restaurant, ironically the same restaurant, where I saw the pickup truck with the 9-11 bumper sticker. Was it the same meal? No, it was different. Oh. But, um, so I was, I was at this restaurant and the waitress gives us our food and she like goes and she leaves and then she turns back around and she comes up to me and she says, I think it's so brave of you that you wear hijab in a place like this. So no matter what people say to you, like just stick, like stick to your beliefs, mm. and then that was it. And she walked away. And for every like person like that, I can endure a million people who are the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is also an important point that um, a lot of times people fall into the notion of thinking that all right, non-Muslims are all a bunch of corrupt people and all like I said, a bunch of Islamophobes and such and. The point you made early on that, for starters, people might be growing up in a homogeneous society and at first at least might be embracing ridiculous beliefs, 
but because they're not given uh, access to anything else. But the fact of the matter is that uh, just about everywhere you go, the default of people is that they're good, wholesome, uh, upright people. Absolutely. And what is growing, what is feeding a lot of the Islamophobia, however, is this terror that comes from globalization. And so in our society and in India right now, you have all kinds of people for whom globalization is running right past them. And they're afraid, and so they have preachers who are telling them, well, it's the Muslims' fault. They're the ones that are ruining our society. And Jews have been going through this uh, through centuries, especially in Christian societies, where, where leaders, whether we're talking about Hitler or someone else, are telling them, okay, it's the Jews' fault. They're the ones that are siphoning all the money away and such. And, and, and so in the mix, uh, corrupting people that would be up otherwise upright, you will often have preachers that are, that are getting the corruption going. And of course, I've also had the opposite experience where I'll go to a church and the preacher seems to be the person who's sound and everybody in the, everybody, all the adults in the, in the church seem to be the, 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 the corrupt, bigoted ones, sometimes getting called up by the preacher or by their own kids and such. But yeah, that's a very important point. Yeah, I think, so when I mentioned Tariq Ramadan in the beginning and I went into abstractions about organic individual stuff, um, I, I'm sure it was a valid point, but... Uh, he talks about emotional politics and the fact that a lot of people are driven by emotion and not by rationality, and so they only experience what they experience, and they base their emotional response on what knowledge they have. Um, and so he said his advice to the Muslim community or the Muslim Ummah was um, not to surrender to that, but to react in a non-defensive way by listening to people and um, kind of acknowledging their fears, acknowledging the fact that they are, they have that terror. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a way into their hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just find it interesting that in, in the abstraction of, of like critical theory and stuff, you still find the essence of um, just listening to people. Um, and it all comes down to that. Mm-hmm. That's a very important point. That's sort of um, uh, Brian Stevenson's point in Just Mercy, that so much of this is about prox- uh, proximity, being pro- uh, keeping proximity with people so you can you know touch and appreciate their humanity. And then Father Gregory Boyle, it's Jesuit in California, he makes a similar point. I forgot what word he uses. I don't know if he, it's compassion or something else or being present or something. Well, yeah, absolutely. And so so you may be growing up in an environment where everyone is unlike you and you feel pressured to be like them. And so the first step is to try to get comfortable in your own self. And better than that is to try to get com- comfortable and more deeper in your relationship with Allah Ta'ala. And then from there also to further appreciate the humanity of all these people around you. You know, um, Naturally, the people that are sensitive and going through similar struggles, because they are also part of minority or marginalized groups, but also those people that are part of the supposed uh, default. Any other thoughts? All right, let's stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka natubi lake. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude are to you. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastafiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubi lake, and we turn to you. Wa ahri da'wana, and alhamdulillah, hirabil alameen.